Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Deeply Talks conference call series. I'm Lara Satrakin, the CEO of News Deeply, and I'm so happy to welcome you to today's call. I'm also happy to be joined by Managing Editor of Refugees Deeply, Tanya Karras. For those who are joining us for the first time, these Deeply Talks calls are a regular feature we do to bring together our network of readers and expert contributors to advance new ideas in humanitarian and environmental issues. Today we're focusing on early childhood development and the welfare of school-aged children in refugee contexts. What's happening to these children? How can we serve them better? And how do we boost their resilience and recovery? As a reminder, you can tweet your questions to at refugeesdeeply or using our hashtag DeeplyTalks. We'll do our best to get to your questions in real time. Our two panelists today have extensive experience in the field. Dr. Lynn Jones, who's currently a visiting scientist at Harvard University's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Her latest book published last June is Outside the Asylum, a memoir of war, disaster, and humanitarian psychiatry. And Dr. Sweta Shah, the global lead on early child development for the Aga Khan Foundation. She's the author of a forthcoming book called Early Childhood Development in Humanitarian Crisis, South Sudanese Refugees in Uganda. Dr. Jones, let's start with you. Half of the world's 25.4 million refugees are under 18 years old. Uh, children also comprise a large part of the world's internally displaced. Tell us a little bit about what you've shared in your paper last year on some key lessons learned from your work, what we all need to understand about the needs and resilience of these children. Right. Well, um, I had 10 lessons, so I'm not going to try and do all of them in a, in a moment. But I'll, I think I'll start with my favorite, which is so pertinent to today, which is that children need to be with those they love. And I, and I was, you know, I was thinking about this concept of displacement. If you take away a child from the person who loves and cares about them, and the younger they are, the worse it is, they are displaced. And that's the crime. It, it doesn't matter if you do that in an orphanage in, in a stable city, or you do it in a refugee camp, or you do it in flight. If the child is separated from the people who protect and love them, they will suffer mentally. And the longer the separation, the worse the suffering. And that brings up the concept of toxic stress. We can go into what exactly that is. But basically, it's bad news. And it will have long-term psychological and physical effects, but it will have immediate effects. This is incredibly relevant today. We have children caged on the US border. Yes, they're still caged there, you know that. We have children traveling alone to escape terrible, disastrous situations in their own countries. And they're losing the one, they're displaced from the one really important thing that will protect their mental health. And that is a loving relationship, protective parental relationship. So I think that was one of the most important lessons I've learned in all my, all my work. And it's not a new lesson. Anna Freud was saying it during the Second World War. Keep children with those they love. I know you don't want to walk through all 10 lessons, but I do because they're so compelling. <laughs> At least we got a few more of them. And some of them were, were in actually counter, not counterintuitive, but, but were, were surprising to us to see that, of course, um, you know, we have to rethink what childhood means and respect how children conceptualize themselves, what it means for them to be forced to grow up so quickly and bear so much responsibility, but also not to force children to talk about their experiences if they don't wish to. Yes, uh, I, I know that that certainly flies in the face of, of Western, Western teaching has changed now, but you know, when I started in this work in the Balkans uh, in the 90s, you know, the model was that 
you, you know, very much from a kind of Western psychoanalytic perspective, it's good to talk about your problems. And the model of uh, sort of trauma therapy, and certainly the children I was working with were working, living in bad circumstances, get it out, you know, get them to talk, get them to make them, make them share their experiences. So interventions like psychological debriefing, which could be quickly taught and you gave everybody the same kind of group or individual process where they're encouraged to relive the experience, share it and process it, and then they'd feel better. We know now that, first of all, some people like to talk about what happened to them. No problem. Give, be able to listen at any time that they want to talk, but some people don't. And if you force people who don't want to talk to talk about their experiences, whether they're adults or children, by the way, they can do badly. And there are all sorts of complicated reasons for why that is. But the lesson is very simple. Don't force talking, but be able to listen. And the lovely thing is children have all sorts of ways of expressing themselves. I mean, again, sorry to go back to Anna Freud, but she's such a good teacher. She said the same thing. And I quote her in the paper. You know, children may not talk about what has happened to them ever. Or if they do, they may they, they process their own emotions first. They may draw, they may want to express in other ways, or they may just not, they just may put it behind them. At the moment, I'm working with refugee children here in Belize who've come from all over Central America. Some have been um, refugees for 10 or 12 years. Some have been refugees for two or two weeks or a few months. And we give them cameras and we say, Share with us what's important in your lives. And I've done this project three or four times with Mexican children, in Mexico with Central Americans, in Greece with Syrians. What's fascinating to me is what they want to talk about and what they want to show. They don't want to talk about the traumas of the past so much. They want to show pictures of those they love, things that are happening around them right now. There again, if children want to share and show you the present, then be interested in that. And I love giving another lesson, giving children their own voice, the space to talk and show what they think is important to them. And they have a lot to teach us. Dr. Shaw, can you share a little bit about your work and lessons you've begun to take away from uh, what really helps the resilience and recovery of these children? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So just adding on to what Dr. Jones mentioned, she uh, mentioned the critical importance of stress that children face and psychological, psychosocial support. And I've seen that a lot in my work. And often we think, um, especially if you're an organization focused on education, you think, okay, well, let's get the kids back into school and learning. And yes, we, we definitely need to do that because just the act of getting young people back into a routine can help normalize their lives, which is really critical for their psychological well-being. Um, but I've also found that sometimes taking a little bit of time before you actually start more formal learning processes um, to focus on recreation and play-based approaches, uh, using integrating art and music and drama can be really powerful tools for children because it helps them relieve their stress um, and you know feel more comfortable in that feeling comfortable and and reducing their stress is really critical so then they can really concentrate and learn um, content so that's one thing that I've found that I've learned through my experience is really important and I'm a huge huge supporter of play-based approaches and not just in early childhood but throughout um, children's primary education. I think when, and, and this is really intuitive for adults as well, if you're doing something that you find fun, you're going to be more likely to hold on to it and remember it. 
And I think that's really critical that when we're thinking about programs for young children, think about something that's going to be relevant to their lives, something that's going to excite them and let them even lead some of the, the topics that and some of the ways that, you know, activities that are done. Um, that can not only make it more relevant, but it'll make it fun and fun um, equals more learning from my perspective and from what I've seen. And Dr. Shaw, is there anything that stri strikes you about what we've learned, especially in the past five to 10 years of practice about non-formal education structures? I know the Agacon Foundation's done really powerful work with governments and education. And also we've seen so many, not just grassroots efforts, but major non-profits um, really pushing for more non-formal structures to fill in that gap uh, when you can't get kids into formal classrooms. Any observations you've made about what we've learned in that in that pathway? Absolutely. I think there's more and more evidence now that um, when you look, especially when you're looking at the earliest years, children between the ages of birth to five, six, before they would even um, enter into a primary classroom, those years are really critical in terms of helping young children <clears throat> form bonds, attachment with family members. And some of the best approaches that I've seen are actually home-based approaches. And really critical in early childhood because children, majority of children tend to spend most of their time with parents at home or with primary caregivers. It's really critical to strengthen the skills and the knowledge of those parents and primary caregivers. So when I say primary caregivers, in some families, it might not be biological parents. It might be grandparents. It might be aunts and uncles. It might be older siblings. And when you go to where families are and, and help them learn about fun games and, you know, songs and things they can do with their children, that can actually have a more powerful effect um, in getting them ready to start school than having them go to a center um, you know, where there might be didactic learning. And just, um, yeah. yep. No, so I've just found that actually non-formal and even informal approaches are, are really excellent and cost-effective as well. Because if you're strengthening the skills of parents and primary caregivers, you don't need to build a, you don't need to construct a center or a building but you go to where they are and start from where they are and help them actually understand um, the things that they already know in their, in, they already know how to care for children. So what we're trying to do is to try to strengthen that and give them some more tips that they can do for their children's development. And just to, to add some context to that from your paper, Dr. Jones, you point out that in these conditions, it's very hard sometimes to, create these healthy patterns within the family unit when violence inside the family unit may be escalating and, and frankly cre creating new levels of damage to long-term mental health for these kids. Well, I, I, I just want to say that I agree with everything that Charles said. And actually, I, I love the, the intervention I'm doing right now alongside working with refugee children and getting to play with cameras is I'm working with parents, mostly mothers, and children between naught and three in the mountains, southern mountains, the Maya communities in Belize. And we're setting up small 
very small village-based mother and baby groups. I am the Belizean Rural Health Nurses and the Community Health Volunteers in the community. So I'm training them to do this very simple intervention that Dr. Shah mentioned, which is simply to encourage mothers to play with their children and see the benefits of that. They already get a great program in terms of vaccinations, all the, all the standard things that come in good primary healthcare packages, but so often those leave out one simple thing, do you play with your baby? And why is that important? And how that helps the brain grow, how that protects the child, how that fosters, our slogan is love, play, communicate. It fosters good language development, good intellectual development, and best of all, good attachment, which will protect the child for the rest of their life. Now, the joy of that intervention is it costs more or less nothing. The training, I, I'm not being paid. The training doesn't cost anything. Once mothers learn, it's infectious. I'm sure Dr. Shah will agree. They'll share it with other mothers. It, it spreads very quickly like a virus through the community. It can be done in any setting. So I actually first developed the, the, it in the IDP communities in northern Uganda, inspired by people like Sally Grant from McGregor. We just did mother and baby groups. Ugandan mothers took it and ran with it and did it with other mothers. I've done it in northern Mozambique. I've done it in Colombia. Mothers, it, it's cross-cultural. It, it is informal. I, I don't think it's a substitute for school, but it precedes school. It will help the child do better at school. And mothers love it. But the other reason they love it is it's a support group. So I've had mothers suffering domestic violence come to the group as one place they can talk about what's happening, get some protection. It also, and there's been research by people much more eminent than me, showing it improves mother's mood. And you know that one of the toxic stresses for childhood is depressed mothers. So you could, of course, tackle that with CBT for the mother, or you could tackle it by having the mother and baby in a mother and baby group playing with their infants, and you have an impact on mood. We showed that in northern Uganda. Thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Jones. This is Tanya Karras. I'm the managing editor of Refugees Deeply. Thank you all for joining us. We also hear a lot about toxic stress. Um, Dr. Shah, how would you explain the factors that create toxic stress for children and how do they shape the rest of their lives? Yeah, so stress is something that everyone experiences. There's positive stress, there's tolerable stress, and then there's toxic stress. So stress is in itself is not necessarily bad. And sometimes actually stress can be, if it's positive stress, can actually motivate you. So if you're like, you know, about to give a speech and you're nervous, that's, that, that's stress, but that's not necessarily bad stress for you. Um, what's bad stress is actually when you face a number of challenges and adversities, and then you don't have a caring adult to really support you in handling that. So all children have some level of resilience and the level of resilience that they're able to really um, use uh, and the amount of resilience that really comes up depends on whether they have that supportive and care, uh, that supportive caregiver. And so for instance, you know, one of the most critical things that can, can affect stress and help it turn toxic is separation from a caring adult. So you see that at the U.S.-Mexico border where a lot of children are being separated from their families. And, and if you compare that to, you know, those maybe in a refugee camp, also there's a lot of adversities in those too. But if they're with their parents and primary caregivers, that's a better situation for children than being separated from their, their families. 
And the impacts of toxic stress, we know from research, go beyond just um, emotional uh, needs. It actually, you know, when stress becomes toxic, when there's been um, long-term um, severe, severe stress, and it becomes toxic, that can actually change the chemical makeup in a person's body and their hormones. And that then research shows can also be transmitted from one generation to the next. So we definitely don't want children to experience toxic stress. The good thing is that uh, you're going to, in a population, whether it's a refugee camp or, or displacement situation in a population, majority of children are not going to experience toxic stress. So that's the good news. Um, but you know, we always wanna make sure that we support children and make sure that, that any sort of stress that they experience does not turn toxic. And the critical, critical piece to that is ensuring that they have a loving and caring adult in their life who can support them. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jones, is there anything that you'd like to add on that? Definitely. I mean, again, I agree with everything that's being said, but I'd like to add two things. One is that, um, unfortunately, one of the problems about camp situations, protracted or short term, is that often the parents are under such stress that things that they weren't doing at home are happening in this situation. I did research on, I did an assessment on children living in a Syrian refugee camp, Syrian refugees living in a camp in Greece. And one of the things that had changed in their lives was that their parents who had never used physical punishment at home were beating them. And that's because understandably they were short tempered, they were stressed, they, there was nowhere to wash, the water supplies were poor, the children come home muddy and the clean clothes in the morning. You can imagine the situation. But the intra-family violence, not just parent to child, but also between, parent, uh, between partners had gone up. And so it comes down, if you want to reduce the toxic stress to which children are exposed in a, in a refugee crisis, you've got to support the parents. And an intervention like lots of clean water may have multiple effects, you know, psychological as well as physical. And addressing discipline practices and how to support parents in taking care of their children becomes really important. But I just talking about, I just want to give a picture of what toxic stress is like, because it, it was very vividly brought home to me in one of the first big emergencies I worked in. I came back into Pristina after airstrikes were over in the middle of the Kosovo crisis in 1999. And I went to the upstairs ward of the hospital in Pristina town, where children who had, were the children of raped mothers had been abandoned, some for as long as 18 months, some for a few months. They were between one and two years old. And every day a nurse would come in and bottle feed them. And they were completely clean. The bedding was clean, the perfect physical conditions. Nobody cuddled or talked to those children or had done so for as far as I could see a very long time. The children did not respond to you normally in an emotional way. They didn't want to cuddle. They cried all the time. There were two-year-olds that could not talk. They developed a crib walk. They could stand up in their cribs and walk sideways. But if I took them out and tried to help them walk forwards, they couldn't do it. Can you imagine what's gone on. You, you don't need to be a doctor to do this. That child's brain has been severely damaged by the long-term stress of never being talked to, cuddled or played with, just fed and clothed. And I saw that with my own eyes. And now the wonderful research, any paper by Jack Shankoff will give you a complete easy breakdown on what toxic stress does in the long-term. Heart disease, 
pulmonary disease, arthritis, all these illnesses are more common in children who have been abused or neglected or abandoned when they were small. It's, I think, a major thing that we have to address and we don't fully understand yet. Dr. Jones, I want to go back to your paper on adversity and resilience. You talk about the most vulnerable children, those who are developmentally disabled, those who have special okay. needs, and yes. how they are or aren't currently accommodated. Yes. Uh, what are we seeing out there and how are they faring? I think that it is very interesting, isn't it? Children with special needs, because I'm, I want to say, first of all, I'm very impressed with organizations like Handicap International. You know, I arrive in Haiti after an earthquake and, you know, right at the beginning, wheelchairs are being distributed. That's amazing. Okay, that's fantastic. But something happens to children with developmental delay. They are somehow off the radar. So in that same crisis, I'm working in the mental hospital, which is in a dire state I won't go into, and outside in the yard is 200 people camped out because they have nowhere else to live. And one of those is a child with special needs, mentally disabled with some physical contractures as well that you often get in some conditions. She is tied to her chair. And her granny, amazing granny, is feeding and caring and washing for her every day. And I can't bear this, a child is tied to her chair, but I understand why her granny is tied her, because if she wasn't tied, she would run off into the traffic or get lost. It's the only way to keep her. So I go around the cluster meetings. I don't have to explain what they are. Um, I, I say, I don't have the facilities. I'm my own agency. We have nowhere to take or help this grandmother and child. Nobody does. Nobody has a program for this child. And I've seen that again and again, that somehow this group is very, especially if there's multiple disabilities, gets left out. And actually they need more attention. They often, I so often meet them with incredibly caring relatives whose whole lives are oriented around protecting and looking after this child. So you've got that loving attachment, but they need a lot more resources and they need attention to support them. So a sort of call out to all agencies working in disaster situations, please consider the needs of children with developmental delay and special needs because they are unaddressed and not attended to, in my experience. Thank you. And how, um, maybe Aga Khan has already looked at this and I'd love to know what they do. Dr. Yeah, Khan? Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, I think this issue of developmental delays and disabilities is such a huge issue and I'm so glad you brought it up because often what, what you see, not even thinking about refugee situations in normal situations, is these children are left out. I remember when I used to work with Darfur refugees in Eastern Chad um, in the camps, I saw a number of kids who were actually tied up in their homes. Um, and we had to really work hard to convince parents to at least send them to the child-friendly space or to um, the, the school that was there. And it was really hard to convince parents. So I think part of the work around getting um, support for children with disabilities or developmental delays actually starts with trying to convince the, the families themselves. It's, it's a little bit of around cultural shift, helping them understand that actually your children um, do have value and your children can learn something and there's a lot that we can do with them. I think the other thing that's really important often happens is that children, um, either they're tied up or don't even access um, any sort of play-based or educational activities, but then sometimes when they do, they're separated from other children. 
And we know from a child development perspective that, you know, children who are developing normally, if they're integrated with children who have some developmental delays, that peer-to-peer support can be really helpful in supporting the child with a developmental delay. Now, of course, if the child is um, has a real severe disability, if they're blind, um, you know, they're, they need specialist support. But if their delay is um, not that major, I think having them be with other children who are developing normally is really, really important because that peer-to-peer support can really help them. And you don't want these children to be socially isolated, which often happens. And that social isolation can then further affect their development as well. So I think those are some really critical things. I think there aren't enough um, teachers or really the workforce that that would support children that can understand, identify developmental delays or disabilities and know how to handle them. And I think that's part of why they're often left out. So I think we need to do a lot of work on strengthening the skills and capacity of those frontline workers who are going to be helping children um, is another. Can I just add, I forgot to say that actually in the ECD groups that we do, we always, and that's a lovely period to cut in, if you can identify these children as babies in all the groups I'm doing in Belize, in in most groups we have at least one child with developmental delay, and that means mother supported, child getting the peer support you're talking about, Dr. Shah, and that's a great time to start. It's when you encounter these children, as she said, trapped in their homes at an older age, it becomes more difficult, so starting young is another approach with infant stimulation groups, you can include them. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just add that um, when you start early, and if you're able to detect some of those developmental delays, then, you know, starting some intervention and support early can maybe help really reduce that delay, or maybe help the child get right back on track. Dr. Shaw, let's um, turn to the issue of nutrition. What are some of the issues that we need to understand um, on nutrition, access to basic care, and how that is impacting the health and development of children in refugee contexts? So nutrition obviously is a really critical, critical component. Um, the WHO, UNICEF, and a number of agencies, including the Aga Khan Foundation, together worked on a new framework for early childhood development called the Nurturing Care Framework. And you can Google um, Nurturing Care Framework and find a whole website that has that. What the Nurturing Care Framework really highlights is multi-sectoral support for young children, which means that nutrition, health, safety and security, stimulation, um, and learning, those are critical, critical elements for every child to develop holistically. So nutrition is really critical. But what we've seen is often in in refugee contexts or emergency contexts, the focus of donors will be on life-saving. And what they see as life-saving is giving food or giving healthcare. They don't think about um, stimulation of the brain as life-saving because it's hard to see the direct and immediate effect of that. But what we've seen from a number of studies, one of the the most famous was done in Jamaica, um, longitudinal study, but there have been others as well that looked at stunted children. So this is chronic malnutrition. And they found that um, when they had children who 
were stunted that had only nutritional supplementation, and then children who had only cognitive stimulation, and those who had both, the group that had both did significantly better in terms of recovering from malnutrition and getting back onto their developmental track than those that had only nutrition. And in fact, a number of the studies also show that the group that had stimulation only actually did better than the groups that had nutrition only. So that goes to show you that actually the cognitive stimulation is so critical um, and, and has shown that it's actually even a little bit more critical than the immediate nutritional intervention. And this is a really important point to think about because humanitarian donors often do not prioritize early childhood development or education. And um, you know, most of the money from humanitarian funds will go towards giving out food or giving out um, shelter or giving out um, vaccinations. But some of these studies actually show that when you have that stimulation, you're going to actually have better results on children. And so I think nutrition absolutely is critical. I would, I would always support a program that um, provided nutritional support. And, and I should clarify that nutrition does not equal food distribution. So often in refugee camps, you will just have um, agencies like WFP giving out food. That, that's not nutrition. Um, nutrition is, is beyond just getting, you know, some food. Um, it's really about helping families understand what are the, what's the nutritional value of the foods there are, what are ways that you can use local foods to make um, a balanced, balanced meals and balanced diets, and that's critical. And when you pair that with cognitive stimulation, you can have really tremendous results. Dr. Jones, I want to get your thoughts on two more points you make in your paper on adversity and resilience. One, that justice, <laughs> be that transitional, yeah, the, this point you make that transitional justice, the war crimes tribunals, even the chance to testify for children can be therapeutic. And the second point I want to call out is you really urge people to understand that the impact of war and displacement is different for boys and girls. The particular burdens and deprivations they face can be quite gendered. Uh, would you like to elaborate on either one of those fronts? The I would. Could I just add one line to the nutrition issue? Because oh, sure, sure. I just I just want to flag breastfeeding. No, because what the migrant crisis, especially at the beginning when people were really on the move and camped out on borders and getting on and off trains and walking long distances, is my husband, who's a, a, a physical medicine doctor and very interested in breastfeeding. We discovered that lots of mothers give up breastfeeding. Okay, in these crises, so it's not just about food. It's about supporting and encouraging breastfeeding and guess what when you're encouraging breastfeeding you're encouraging a healthy attachment to the child so it's two hits with one it's such a good opportunity and i i want to put a shout out for anybody working with people on the move people displaced and actually moving that this is a major nutritional issue that people find it difficult that the breast dries up or they're frightened or they don't think it's appropriate and really supporting that aspect of nutrition is crucial both for the bonding and for the play and for the food and so it's an area that I haven't seen much discussed, but it became really important. It's something we worked on specifically when we were living in Greece. So that's that point. Coming to, I think I just do, yes, justice. <laughs> Let me talk about that first, because it is so interesting to me. 
um, how important that is. You know, I, I work, again, going back to Kosovo, I learned so much from the children that I worked with. I worked with a family of children who suffered the most dreadful, horrible massacre of their entire family, and they were with their two fathers, the sole survivors, and it was a very famous massacre. But they, they had, this is where also I learned about not talking, Four out of the five children in the family just didn't want to really talk about what had happened. A couple had already talked to journalists and that was sufficient. They wanted to do that, witness it, but they didn't want to talk in therapy. And they got on with their lives. They were evacuated, asylum, had got asylum in the UK. They did quite well. A war crimes tribunal came along and said, we'd like to interview them for the Milosevic trial. What do you think? I said, well, you have to ask them. And we all got together in a room and I explained what it was about and, you know, it was completely up to them. They're free not to go back there, free to talk about it. Every child, from young age, under 10, up to teenager, wanted to give testimony in one of those, you know, professional video suites where you do, where you give testimony. First of all, for that trial, as you know, Milosevic died, it never came to trial. They then, there was an opportunity when one of the perpetrators of the massacre in their case was on trial in Serbia, one of the first war crimes trials in Serbia. They were asked if there would be witnesses in court. They all wanted to go. They asked me to come with them. I'm happy to do so. And I watched them in court give testimony. And I saw how healing and how powerful it is to stand up and face the perpetrators of a crime and say, you did this and this is how it affected me. And I'm not the only person to say this. It has to be the child's choice. But if that's what they want, do everything you can to facilitate it. And on the point of the gendered impact of war and displacement, anything you want our listeners to understand? Well, just look around you. If any of you are working in camps at the moment or in any refugee situation, and just take note, what are the children doing? And what are the girl children doing? And what are the boy children doing? My, my general, this is a global exaggeration here, but my general experience is that uh, boys tend to be playing and girls tend to be working. And actually, it's the same right here in non-camp situations, in small villages, in Belize. This is just life as it goes. So I go around, and I'm so happy with people who set up child-friendly spaces, I go around trying to get girls into them, you know, because often mothers saying, well, the boys can go, but she's busy looking after the younger ones. And so it's a little bit of a discussion to say, well, actually, you know, she'd like to go too, and she needs to play, like Michelle said, play, play, play. She needs to play she needs to learn she needs to you know it was a, another interesting thing is that you know girls and boys I talked to in the camps in Greece they wanted school they said we've got lots of play we had lots of volunteers doing play so we want school we want to learn we want to build our futures and girls want this as much as boys so please look out for what's going on for girls and boys if you're working in any displaced population and if you see this kind of discrimination I don't know what else to call it try and in a very sensitive way address it Dr. Shah, you've been pulling out lessons learned from the context of South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, particularly on early childhood development. Is there anything that you'd like to call out for us to understand? Yeah, I think the critical thing is often people who don't know early childhood development think, oh, this is you know too hard. I can't do anything. Like This is a whole area that I don't know about. And often that is um, the kind of reaction that we'll get from health colleagues who say, I know health, I know nutrition, I don't know early child development. And I think what, what I found in my research and also just in the years of, of practice doing this is that it actually doesn't take that much to make small tweaks to programming 
to integrate critical elements of what children need, of the nurturing care that they need um, to make a big difference. And so a lot of it is about kind of saying, okay, if you have a nutrition program, why don't we, as you're talking to mothers about breastfeeding, or if you're talking to them about or giving out nutrition, giving out food, how can we talk about ways that they can um, play with their baby? Um, use the opportunities that you have to, to get messages. And sometimes I found that you don't always have to have an intense program that's separate from uh, an existing program. You can have a light touch where um, parents, let's say they're going to a water point or they're going to pick up their food or their um, non-food items at, um, in a camp. Well, those can also be opportunities to have a light touch approach and let parents know a little bit more about child development. And even if they're doing a few things additional from what they did, that's a great start. So I found that actually um, even the smallest amount of, of support that you can give doesn't have to cost a lot of money can have such a huge impact. So in my research um, with South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, I found that when I compared the children who were in the early childhood intervention, they were in child-friendly spaces that were kind of um, used in the morning for early childhood activities and, excuse me, in the afternoon for youth and adolescent activities, I found that actually like the, the differences were so stark. And I don't just mean in terms of their learning, but they were more confident, they uh, were more comfortable, they had a lot of the soft skills that are also really critical for children um, in the 21st century. They were developing, they, you know, were talking more. Um, they just had a level of comfort. It, I didn't even, I mean, I did do quantitative and qualitative in-depth research, but in fact, I could see it so plainly just by looking at them that the um, activities that they were going through just had a tremendous impact on them. And it had a huge impact on their parents and the community as well. So even when I was doing the study, um, so many families, when they, they knew that you know, I was collecting data, they wanted to participate to the point where we had even more, we had such a huge demand for participation than when I actually had the staffing um, to actually collect data. So I think like for me, the lesson learned is that it's not so hard to integrate really critical elements of early childhood development into existing programs. You should go to where families are. Don't necessarily try to set up separate um, parenting groups or separate this group or separate that. I mean, you can do that, but a more cost-effective and easier way, especially in a, an emergency context, is to try to build on what's already there, what, what structures are already in place. And I think using play-based approaches, I will um, say that over and over, using play is such a critical, critical way for children to learn and to relieve stress. So those would be three things um, that I would highlight. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today's conversation. Dr. Lynn Jones, Dr. Sweda Shah, thank you so much for your time and incredible insights. And thanks to all of you on the line for joining us. We'll be posting the recording from today's call on refugeesdeeply.com. You can follow our coverage at refugeesdeeply.com, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great day.